Hey sci-fi fans, this is Michael Welch from the Twilight Films and the upcoming sci-fi series Z Nation, and you are listening to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. You're listening to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast, serving the latest news in sci-fi multimedia. And now, your hosts, Scott, Miles, and Anna. Your table is ready. Live long and prosper. This is the captain. We have a little problem with our entry sequence, so we may experience some slight turbulence and then explode. I got a bad feeling about this. Walter, put the cow away, would you? What is this place? It's a freak show. Good evening, diners. Tonight we have a guest chef ready to serve some lovely literary dishes. From Star Trek Voyager to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, this New York Times best-selling author has been preparing novels to carry us into the future with our favorite crew members. Tonight, we're cooking up some sci-fi goodness with Kirsten Beyer. Good evening, and welcome to the diner. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You know, it was a real pleasure. Uh, we talked a little bit before the show, but it was a real pleasure to meet you in person at Shore Leave here on the East Coast because you're flying across the country to just kind of be in our neck of the woods. Yeah, it was great. It was a wonderful uh, convention, as usual. They always do a very nice job there. Right. Well, you and, and, and it has to be fun to kind of rub shoulders with other people that are also writing Star Trek. Oh, yeah. I mean, we talk throughout the course of the year, obviously, um, whenever any of us are working on anything that might intersect somebody else's work. For the most part, we'll, you know, send an email or pick up the phone or whatever and, and uh, ask questions or get feedback if we need to. Um, but that is one of the only places um, every year that we almost always see each other. So, yeah, that's a huge treat. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Well, let's uh, since we're talking Star Trek here, let's uh, let's talk a little bit. Uh, what kind of began your entry into the world of Star Trek Voyager novels? Um. Well, what began it was Shore Leaf, actually, um, but it all kind of started before then. I um, Star Trek was the Star Trek Voyager was the first Trek series I ever watched from uh, the very first episode it aired, you know, live as it was airing all the way through. Um, I started watching it when I had just gotten out of graduate school, and there were people that I had worked with at UCLA who were working on the show, so I initially tuned in just to watch their work. And um, then after the first couple of episodes, I was just hooked because I was really enjoying it. Um, and it was probably, I don't know, four or five episodes in when I suddenly had an idea for what I thought would be a really cool story. But at that point, I hadn't really done any writing. So I, um, I ran the idea past a few friends, and then I ran it past my husband. And he was sort of like, well, what are you going to do, write it? And I was like, yes, I think I will. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, so I started to teach myself how to write for television using Star Trek Voyager as a template. I got copies of scripts. Um, I studied the show. I went back and studied other Star Trek shows. But really, I sort of cut my teeth on Voyager and um, ended up writing two scripts um, on spec that at that point in time, you were allowed to submit to the producers. They had a special um, sort of system where they were accepting unsolicited manuscripts at that point, which meant manuscripts that didn't come from an agent. They just came from an individual. So I submitted the two scripts. Both of them were rejected, but um, I still kept watching the show and just started writing other things. Um, and then about two or three episodes into the fourth season, um, I, got, I saw an episode that just sort of annoyed me. I thought it was so not well done that I wrote a very snotty letter to Jerry Taylor, who was the executive producer of the show at the time, telling her that, I was supposed to be working for her, basically. And she wrote me back and um, invited me to start coming in and pitching. So for the last several years that Voyager was on the air, I would go in a couple times a year and meet with the writers and pitch story idea stuff. Wow. None of, yeah, none of them ever sold, but they always liked a couple of them and always asked me to come back. And, you know, it ended up being a great education for me. Um, in terms of developing new material and also in terms of pitching professionally, which is a hard skill to learn. So um, so Voyager came to an end, and by that time I had a number of, you know, unproduced scripts I had written, dozens and dozens of stories, 
And I sort of knew the show kind of by heart. I mean, better than anybody should know that show. (laughs) Um, And it was probably in the last year or so, maybe the last two years, somewhere in there, I had started uh, looking online for other folks who were interested in Trek and, you know, kind of had my mind blown by how much material was already out there on the Internet um, about Trek. And through that process, I got to know Heather Jarman, who about that time was discovered by Marco Palmieri and who had been asked to write for Pocket Books for the Deep Space Nine line. And her first novel there was Disgrace Spirit. So I worked with her on that novel. I was her beta reader, and we went back and forth through all of that. And um, as she was winding up that process, she, what did she do? She put me in touch first with um, the person who was at Pocket at the time who was handling the Voyager books. Um, and I sent her a package of materials, and like 24 hours later, you know, we were on the phone, and she was, um, you know, beginning to work with me on what I thought was going to be my first Star Trek Voyager book. And we did that for a couple of months back and forth, and then suddenly she just, like, disappeared. Um, she had moved on, but I had no idea, and there was nobody else for me to get in touch with to find out, you know, what had happened or whatever. So it was a few months after that that Heather said, well, why don't you just come to shore leave and talk to Marco, and he'll tell you what's going on and who you should get in touch with next. So that's what I did, my very first shore leave. I went with Heather as her guest, and she introduced me to Marco, who was the editor of Deep Space Nine and a few other things at the time, and had just basically been handed Star Trek Voyager and didn't know quite where he was going to go with it. Um, But we met and we talked, and then afterwards I sent him some writing samples, and um, a few months later he called me with uh, his first offer for me to write for him. The first call I got, it was, <laughs> it was quite a day, first call I got, he called and asked me to contribute a short story to Distant Shores, which was the 10-year anniversary anthology that he was putting together. And then a few hours later, he called and asked if I would also write the middle book to the trilogy that was going to celebrate the anniversary. Um, the first book was going to be written by Jeff Lang, and Heather was going to write the third one. And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? So, <laughs> That's sort of how it all started. Wow, that's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. That's your gu- I, I'm, I'm in awe of the guts to go, you know what? I should be working for you. <laughs> I, 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 I appreciate that so bad. That's wonderful. But you have to know how annoyed I was at that episode to be able to write that. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> I had to believe it. You know? Right. Dare like, we oh, my ask, God, do people need me? <laughs> dare, we, dare, dare we ask the name of the episode? Um, I've never said. Okay. And I really, I would really rather not. Okay. Not that I know any of the people who necessarily, you know, were on it, but right. I'd really rather not say. Yeah. Yeah. Did it involve Neelix and Kess being really, really annoyingly sweet? It actually doesn't. <laughs> okay. Well, then, it was then not a Neelix and Kess episode. <laughs> that does actually thin it down because those two drove me a little crazy after a certain yeah. point. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I mean, I loved Kess and how she evolved, but. There's mm-hmm. just, you know, sometimes you just want to shake Neelix by those furry little chops of it on the side of his face. I know. And when I think back about him in general, a lot of times that's my reaction. But then every now and again, I have to rewatch a lot of the series or big chunks of the series. And uh, sometime in the last couple of years, like I had to rewatch all of season four back to back within like a couple of weeks or whatever. And I'm always surprised when I go back how, how much good work he really did. Mm. Um, there are some really amazing Neelix episodes mm-hmm. um, or episodes where he's not the main guy, but he'll just have a scene or two where you're like, holy cow, where did that come from? You know, um, I, I just I just flashed on a scene from, I think it was Drive, where, uh, or no, it was from Alice, where um, Tom Paris was off having his affair with the weird shuttle entity, whatever, <laughs> and he and Bellana had sort of had their thing going, but she was feeling like it was all over. And Neelix kind of sits her down, and he's like, what are you talking about? This is the greatest guy in the world. You guys clearly love each other. You're not going to let him go over this stupid ship. I mean, come on. And I'm like, <laughs> where is that Neelix most of the time? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Every now and again, they gave him really nice stuff, and he executed it brilliantly. So I have a lot more affection for him now mm. than I used to. You know, it, well, it, it, it must be really hard for you to say, you know what? I've got to go do research. I've got to go watch Voyager again. <laughs> I know it's a hard job. But you've got to do it, right? There are episodes where I'm like, oh, God, I have to really watch that one again. Like, oh, God. But not many. Most uh, of them I'm fine with. 
Oh, that's awesome. There's a string of early ones where I'm like, oh, God, really? But, you know, for the most part. And you want to bring characters in. And, and are you're going back to old episodes. Are you going to other novels or working with other writers who have been in that universe? Kind of give it, Can you give us a little glimpse into that, into that process? I'm not sure I understand the question exactly. So when you're when you're starting to put the books together, like this new book that's coming out in September, um, and you're starting to build it up, when you say that you do a little, you do research, you go back and watch the shows. Do you also reach out to some of the other some other writers who have written in this Voyager universe or the Star Trek universe? Some do you touch back to a couple of other novels or what? Absolutely, yeah. No, it depends on each novel is different in that regard. The, the the beginning of this process for me, I mean, I wrote the anniversary books, the 10-year anthology, you know, short story, and the book of the trilogy, the String Theory trilogy. Mm-hmm. And then I was off for a couple of years, and I did some other things, but then it came time for Marco to pick up the ongoing story of Voyager post the four golden books that had already come out. And um, uh, so... At that point in time, it was, a, it was a long process. It took about a year and a half for everything to sort of settle down um, because I had sort of come up with some ideas and then Destiny sort of began to happen, uh, which was the big crossover Borg story that David Mack did that was breathtakingly brilliant. And um, it became clear that we were going to be tying all of the other series to the events of Destiny. So everything that came out of that or came after that was going to have to integrate what had happened in Destiny into it. And with Voyager, that was particularly complicated because I had to tell a couple years of story from before Destiny and then pick up Destiny and then continue on. Um, It was like a massive jigsaw puzzle. But so in that time period, this was back in 2007, 2008, um, I was constantly working not only with David Mack, but with Chris Bennett and, oh, God, Keith DeCandido and... um, Andy, Mike Martin, and then um, Bill Leisner, Leisner sort of came in at the end of that whole process. Um, we, all sort, we all sort of called ourselves the, the group that was cleaning up Max Mess, um, but, <laughs> but we all had to um, kind of check with each other constantly, and everybody read each other's manuscripts and gave notes and commented on characters and stuff like that. But from that point on, I was kind of on my own. Because in the course of Full Circle and then Unworthy, I took Voyager back to the Delta Quadrant, and everybody else was in the Alpha Quadrant doing their own thing, and I had everybody kind of all to myself. So the only real um, specific interactions I've had to deal with um, usually involve Tuvok, because he's on the Titan. Mm. And um, there have been a few places where I needed to reference what was going on with him. And so I'd get in touch with Mike, or I'd get in touch with Chris Bennett, who's written a lot of Titan, and um, sort of we would work through timeline issues and figure out, you know, where certain things happened and and how that would affect what I was doing. Um, So there's a lot of that that goes on now. Um, What else? I mean, sometimes I'm just, there are just sort of general science or timeline kind of questions that I have and, and other writers are better resources for, for that than I am. Um, so I'll reach out to them if I have specific questions or issues and everybody's always great about, you know, responding and helping in any way we can, because we're all, you know, working toward the same goal, which is to make these books as, as wonderful as we possibly can and as tight as we possibly can. So, so yeah, a fair amount of that goes on. Yeah. Awesome. Well, um, you want to ask this next question? Well, I, I think when you refer to Marco's story, that's, that's where we see the death of Catherine Janeway, right? No. Um, the death of Catherine Janeway came in a book called Before Dishonor, mm-hmm. which was released before Destiny. It uh, was like the uh, there was there was a a sort of year of books that led up to Destiny, starting with Resistance, and then Before Dishonor, and then Q and A, and then Greater Than the Sum, and then Destiny, um, and all of that was building up to Destiny quite intentionally. Uh, with the idea that we were going to suddenly, not suddenly, but whatever, make the Borg essentially frightening again. The notion was that when we had first met the Borg, they were the most terrifying thing possible out there. But by the time we got through Voyager, the Borg had sort of been neutered. That, you know, basically Voyager kicked their ass every time we saw them. And that makes them less scary. So um, 
knowing that Mac's intention was to ultimately deal with not only the beginnings but the end of the Borg, they wanted to build that up. And um, one of the ways that they chose to demonstrate basically how scary and and uh, intense the Borg were again was by having them kill an officer that um, was very valuable and very loved. And so they chose to kill Janeway. And the author who did that was Peter David in his book, Before Dishonor. It was technically a Next Generation book, but it had Seven of Mine on the cover and obviously had the whole Janeway death storyline in there. And Seven was integral to the process of solving that problem, working with Picard and the team on the Enterprise. So she died in that book, and then we had a couple of other books that came out before Destiny, but but Voyager's sort of family of characters did not address her death until Full Circle, which was the first Voyager book that came out after that whole thing. Hmm. I mean, what were your thoughts there? Because I, I, in, in some of the synopses for the books, when this happened and, and when you started writing, what was... I, I'm I'm of course I'm at a loss words to how to ask. This. This is great. Hi, you're going to write Voyager from now on, and we just killed your captain. Are you cool with that? Is that yeah, 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 exactly. You know, how do you how do you respond to that when you're like, oh, this is one of your favorite things in the whole wide world? By the way, I mean there well, was not to mix universes, but there was a great disturbance in the force. I'm sure there, when, there was a, there was a much greater disturbance in the force than I ever anticipated there would be. Let me tell you. Um, yeah. Uh, I did not have a problem with it at all. Um, because I don't, I don't, I don't get to approach this stuff like a fan anymore. I am a fan. Obviously nobody who does what I do could do it without loving everything there is to love about Voyager. Um, but at the time we were dealing with, a group of characters who had been separated in the course of the books that preceded mine. They had come home, right? They made it home, which was the big point of the show. And then everybody sort of went their separate ways. And everybody had new and interesting um, sort of arcs that they were exploring. But um, as long as we were going to leave Voyager in the Alpha Quadrant, it sort of felt like that was going to become the status quo. Like there was not really a good way to bring everybody back together and reestablish the feel that the series had without necessarily repeating what the series was doing, because you can't do that. You can't send them back to the Delta Quadrant and strand them there again and then have them try to get home. I mean, that's, we've done that. So you can't do that. But you need to find an organic, in-universe, meaningful kind of way to have it make sense to keep these people working together, albeit in slightly different ways, right? Everybody has to keep growing and changing. So, but trying to follow them through the Alpha Quadrant in all of their different storylines was not going to be, um, it, it was going to be really messy. It like wasn't the best way to sort of make that happen, I didn't think. Um, and I also really felt like Voyager's unique identity and contribution to Starfleet was their knowledge of the Delta Quadrant. So... Um, the notion of having them back there, I mean, basically when Marco first came to me and said, what do you want to do with Voyager now? The first thing I said was, we need to go back to the Delta Quadrant. Um, just so that we could bring everybody back together, have them continue to work in ways that were familiar, but then also continue to grow and, and develop the characters as much as we possibly could. Um, so the notion of doing that without Janeway um, was as exciting as it was sort of sad, if, if that makes sense. Um, all of the other characters needed to grow a little bit. We had seen them for seven years sort of under her shadow. So we had seen them for seven years sort of under her shadow and working in one way. Um, and in a very unique set of circumstances, right? Lost all by themselves trying to get home. Um, in order for us I, to continue to maintain interest in these characters, I felt like we were going to have to see them all sort of evolve. And the death of Janeway was an incredibly powerful way to force that evolution upon them as characters. So once I realized it was going to happen, I absolutely embraced it wholeheartedly, um, knowing how much room it would give me to 
explore the other characters and to make their 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 storylines and, and everything about them just deeper and richer and uh, more meaningful. So um, it, it just it just wasn't a problem. And in the back of my mind, I guess I thought, you know, this is Star Trek. Of course, she'll come back at some point. But as time went on and as the new fleet took shape and all the new characters came um, together and the new mission was set and we started to write a few books without her, it also became clear to me that we could probably tell Voyager stories as long as we wanted to without Janeway and also be just fine. Now, there are a number of very vocal fans who might disagree with that statement, but (laughs) from my perspective and the editor's perspective, that's sort of where we were. And, and and you mentioned the fans. How have the fans responded to books without Janeway? Um, it was awful. Um, there were there, there were there were three groups of people. There were people who enjoyed Voyager for what it was when it was on television, and who were interested in continuing with the books. And from the time Full Circle started, they really enjoyed the new direction. And they maybe liked Janeway, but didn't really miss her one way or the other, and liked what we were doing so much that it was like, fine, who cares? Just, you know, keep telling good Voyager stories. There were fans who had not liked Voyager at all and loved the new direction so much that suddenly they became Voyager fans. And most of them really didn't want Janeway back. They, they might have felt like, in some ways, her presence is what was holding the show back in some ways. So what we had done when we created the new fleet and added some of the new characters more than made up for her absence in their eyes. Then there was a group of fans who, for them, Voyager is Catherine Janeway. And um, from the moment her death was announced and then before Dishonor came out, they were livid. And they attributed all sorts of horrible things to the editors and to me, um, that, you know, were absolutely not true in any way, shape, or form. But, it, you know, they were expressing their disappointment and anger. Um, you know, and the loss of the first woman captain of a series, I mean, that is a, that's a big deal. You can't um, pretend that that's nothing, right? Um, but I never was able to really get on board with the notion that Voyager could not exist without her. Um, because for one thing, we were showing that it absolutely could. And for another thing, you know, there's a, you want there to be a sense of reality to these stories. I mean, yes, it's science fiction. Yes, we're in space. Yes, we have all these cool toys. But at the end of the day, for the reader to be able to continue to suspend disbelief, there need to be real things at stake. And because we're no longer in an era of the books where at the end of every story, all the toys have to be put back in the box exactly the way we found them when we started, because anything can happen, it's important that from time to time, big changes do happen. Um, You know, and not for nothing, but the new sort of initially captain of Voyager and then leader of the fleet was also a woman. Um, Not that we wrote her to replace Janeway, not that she was just another Janeway, but you know, it's not like we were betraying the sisterhood. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, you know, during the years when it was full circle and then Unworthy and then Children of the Storm, which was about three, at least three years of real time, um, there was a lot of vitriol directed toward me Ooh. and toward Pocket um, for continuing to write Voyager stories without Janeway. And that was tough to hear because I knew that these people loved Voyager a lot, and I really wanted to be able to tell stories that made them happy. But I couldn't ignore all of the stuff that's possible with Voyager, and I couldn't um, pretend that you know there was only one way to to make this happen. You know, mm. that wasn't going to do anybody any good. So, but it was tough. Well, I mean, given. Fans of the Trek universe, they're they're fierce and they're loyal and they're dedicated. And yeah. with that, are are you getting any emails saying you should hire me? Because here's what you should write about. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've never had. I've never had that happen. Um, I mean, you know, there, I got plenty of of responses and reviews and things that 
you know, kept saying in no uncertain terms, this, this sucks until you bring Janeway back. And I'm sort of like, well, why are you reading it then? But, um, but beyond that, very few people have ever tried to suggest bring Janeway back and, you know, and then do this mm. and then do that. I mean, you know, it's, I, I don't know why I'm so lucky that I don't get those, those emails, but I don't. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm looking through, I'm just looking through like, I, you know, I'm looking through Goodreads and in all of your books, even full circle where, you know, you kind of bring Voyager back, you, you know, to the Delta Quadrant, you, um, uh, you're getting, you know, four and a half stars, five star, almost five star reviews. So it sounds like those naysayers are kind of, at least if they're being vocal, they aren't being real vocal online. Oh, well, it depends on where you go. Um, <laughs> the Trek TVS is sort of where I spend the most of my time online, Star Trek related. And there are many threads going back many years that were um, quite heated, you know, and it wasn't just the, it wasn't just coming from one side because from the moment the Janeway fans sort of dug their heels in and were like, these books suck. There is absolutely no reason to read Voyager if you're not writing about Catherine Janeway. All the fans who had come along who were loving the new direction dug their heels in just as hard on the other side and were like, you guys are out of your mind. And they weren't, they weren't terribly nice to each other and they weren't really listening to each other. And every time I got in the middle of it, it only sort of made it worse because <laughs> clearly I was lying and I was telling the party line and I was just trying to be political. And, you know, none of that was true. I was really trying to let everybody know that I was hearing both sides of this. But at the end of the day, there is no fan response on one side or the other that dictates what we do. Um, you know, the people at Pocket have the license to um, put out these books. Every choice that they make is approved by CBS, who um, owns the Star Trek publishing part of it. So um, as long as CBS and Pocket are happy, then we get to do what we, what we think we need to do next. And they, you know, they have us, they hire writers that they have confidence have a close enough connection with the fan base and the stories um, to be able to continue to tell compelling stories, but it's never about pleasing the fans in that kind of way. It's not like we get our reviews and we say, okay, this is what people want to see now and that's what we write next. We have our own sort of creative sense and vision. Um, we also have a lot more information than they do on any given day about what may be happening in other books or other stories or other parts of the universe. Um, so it's, you can't base decisions creatively on what the fans say that they want um, because there is no monolithic fan base that all wants the same thing. And even if there was, you probably wouldn't be able to keep telling good stories for very long if that's all you did. You know what I'm saying? Right, mm -hmm. right. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was an exhausting few years of my life, I just have to say. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. It was really uh... hard. I'm sorry you had to go through all the hate. <laughs> so, oh, wow! You know, uh, you mentioned that you you know this this obviously this story is get approved by CBS, and so really you aren't working with CBS in this. You're kind of working through pocketbooks and what they're saying and their relationship to CBS. Is that correct? Right. I have an editor who, and I've had a few of them now over the years that I've been doing this who comes to me and says, okay, we'd like you to write the next Voyager book. What do you want to do? And I'll present them with one or two story ideas, and they'll say, okay, run with this one. And then I will develop a full outline of the story based on whatever we've discussed. The editor will approve that. And, and because the editors have been doing this for a million years, they know what CBS is going to like and not going to like. So for the most part, once you get to that point, you're going to submit that outline to CBS, and they may come back with one or two questions or comments or notes or small changes or whatever, um, but usually that's pretty much what the story is going to be. Uh, if they request specific things, you have to honor them and, and make those changes or whatever. Uh, but once they approve the outline, then you know, you're set to write the book. Once you write the book and the manuscript is finished, CBS takes another look at it, and um, again, they may request changes or whatever. But um, for me, anyway, that usually doesn't happen. Wow. So, yeah. Now, is that the, now uh, let's go back just a little bit. Uh, you know, was that the same type of process you went through when you wrote your uh, Buffy novel and when you wrote your uh, the one with J.J. Abrams? The Alias awesome. novel, yeah. yeah. Um, it was a little bit different. I am certain that um, 
Bad Robot and probably someone at at, uh, at Joss Whedon's company had um, approvals. I don't know who they were. I was never connected to that part of it. Basically, um, my Star Trek editor at the time referred me to the editor at Simon & Schuster. He was in a different division, um, but he was working on alias books, and I was looking for some new writers. So he referred me to him. That editor and I talked briefly. I wrote him, you know, a synopsis for something that I thought would be a good story. He approved it, and we were off to the races. Um, And then after that book was done... Um, I think it was it was several months before I got back in touch with him and um, asked him if there was anything else he was working on because the alias books were done by then. Um, and he said, Buffy. And I had always loved Buffy. So I decided to try to put a proposal together for that, and I did, and he liked it, and that ended up becoming the Buffy book. I had no idea at the time that it was actually going to be the last Buffy book they ever put out. Um, I didn't know that until the book was done. But... Uh, but yeah, so that that one, I I don't uh, whatever the licensors um, part of it was, I was never included on. Basically, I did my manuscripts. The editors got back to me with letters outlining the changes they wanted. We made the changes, and we were done. Those were very quick, easy, very painless processes altogether. So. Well, do you, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, premise for like the Alias book, for example? Um. So the Alias book was, uh, they were putting together a series of APO novels that was just at the beginning of season four when, um, I can't even remember now because it has been so long, but there were some big changes in the show and the structure of it and um, Sydney working um, inside whatever that organization was. I can't remember. It had all exploded. And come beginning of season four, they were all sort of brought back together under this APO um, thing, and everybody was suddenly working together. There were no more secrets about who was on what side and who was CIA and who was whatever. Um, so I had been just a fan of the show and just watched the show for the first few seasons, and then season four started, and they ended up sending me discs of like the first seven or eight episodes before they came out so I could see what was happening with APO, and then they asked me to place a story in that um time period. So uh, I think I came up with, it was a, there was a terrorist, or no, there was a doctor. God, what was it? Basically, there was a, there was a group of people who were trying to um, put Marburg, the, the, it's a virus that's very similar to Ebola, um, in the drinking water of certain um, cities in Africa. And um, it was all tied to a genetic researcher who um, had been making like incredible breakthroughs that were sort of inexplicable. Uh, and what it turned out was that he had a young daughter who was basically a savant um, who had the ability to sort of see the entire human genome in her head and could, um, could make changes that essentially allowed her to cure diseases for individual people um, based on their genetic code. But she sort of, you know, she was like 10 or 11 years old and didn't really understand this power that she had. And so the story revolved around um, Sydney sort of finding this little girl and and keeping her safe when her dad was murdered. Um, With the new book launched uh, in September, Star Trek Voyager Acts of Contrition, Uh do you have like a little sneak peek, a little amuse-bouche you can share with the... um, with our listeners about the next adventure with Janeway and her team? Well, sure. Um, it, it, so we've done um, one, two, three, four, five Voyager books so far, right, in this new sort of paradigm. Um, and the first three were, were the beginnings of the mission in the Delta Quadrant without Janeway. The fourth one was the Eternal Tide in which Janeway returned. Um, and then uh, after that, we picked up the story sort of right where that ended in a book called Protectors, which came out at the end of January of this year. Um, and Protectors and then Acts of Contrition and then the third volume, Atonement, are really a trilogy of, story, of books that tell one big story about a massive adventure uh, that the whole fleet um, has um, post-January's return. So... Protectors was sort of a time where we 
uh, all got our feet back under ourselves again. Uh, the events of the Eternal Tide were just massive, and you know, it was one of those the universe is about to come to an end kind of things. Um, so everybody needed a chance to settle down. There were also a lot of casualties. We lost a bunch of ships. We lost a bunch of people in Eternal Tide, and we needed to sort of regroup and figure out what what ships were going to be part of the fleet, what officers, and how all of that was going to work. So, um, and there was also a you know interesting scientific discovery that happened through the course of all of that. Um, the the fleet essentially discovered a um, a new life form that was um, they actually found based on the second season episode Twisted. I don't know if you guys remember that episode, but um, mm-hmm. the one where the they encountered this waveform that basically turned the ship into a pretzel mm-hmm. before it passed <laughs> okay. on. Well, that that ship dumped like 20 billion gigaquads of data or something ridiculous into their databanks and then moved on. And we never heard anything about it again, and we never knew anything about what that data was. So the premise and protectors are part of it was that over the years, Harry Kim had been trying to figure out what was in that message. And one of the things he found was a series of coordinates that he believed were basically the, the location where that waveform originated. So Voyager now with slipstream drives and the ability to travel greater distances than they ever could before is able to go out and investigate those coordinates and they find those waveforms um, basically protecting this planet that's dying. And the part, a part of that story is them figuring out how to help the waveforms and how to save the planet. Through the course of that, they end up discovering that the people who destroyed that whole area of space and ended up creating this doomed planet were called the worlds of the first quadrant. And at the end of Protectors, we met um, a few ships from the worlds of the first quadrant. So in Acts of Contrition, we pick up that story, and the entire fleet is, is pulled back together to make first contact with what is essentially as close as we've ever come to a Federation-like organization in the Delta Quadrant. There are lots of similarities. They're very technologically advanced, obviously. Um, It's like 53-member world. They've been around for like 500 years as opposed to the 250 that we've been, uh, that the Federation has has existed. Um, But then there are also ways in which they are quite different. So um, figuring out whether or not we can actually make an alliance with this um, confederacy and um, possibly have a sort of really nice safe home base in the Delta Quadrant um, is the issue at hand. That's, that's the A story of acts of contrition. And then the B story involves another plot thread that was, that was brought up in um, Protectors, which is essentially that... The, uh, over the last year since the Kaliar transformation of the Borg, a new um, plague has arisen on a few of the worlds where there was heavy fighting during the invasion. And Starfleet Medical believes that that plague is caused by Kaliar Ketom, which only a few people um, in the uh, universe actually have those that we know of. So Seven of Nine is one of them. Another is um, Axum, the character that uh, we met in the episode Unimatrix Zero, mm-hmm. um, who we learned in Protectors, also chose not to join the Kaliar Gestalt when, when he was invited. Um, he chose to remain outside because Seven wasn't there, and he didn't want to go anywhere that she wasn't. So, um, so he's recovered, and he's taken prisoner, um, and they're trying to figure out uh, if they can use his Katoms in any way to get to the bottom of this illness. And at the end of Protector, Seven is asked to come back. And because she is, is experiencing a sort of catomic communication with him and senses that he's in danger, uh, she agrees very readily to go back to the Alpha Quadrant and try to help him. Um, so she goes back. Dr. Sherrick goes with her to sort of watch over her and make sure that she's okay. And then Tom Paris has his own issues with his mother. Um, she's uh, essentially petitioned the Federation Family Court uh, to gain custody of his child uh, because um, he lied to her about his child's death, and um, so Tom goes back with them, and in acts of contrition, he has to confront the uh, the issue with his mother and the, the mediation that's meant to determine whether or not he's going to get to keep his children, and Seven is going to work with Dr. Sherrick and Axum, 
to try to get to the bottom of the catomic plague. Ooh. Awesome. Ooh. So yeah, there's Ooh. a little bit going on. Yeah, just just a little. Just bit. a bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's of course it's of course the middle book of a trilogy, so it is not the whole story either. The 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 entire story doesn't get completed until Atonement, which is a book that follows that and will come out at some point in 2015, like around the middle of it, but I don't know exactly when. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. That's so awesome. it starts with it with protectors, goes mm-hmm. to acts of contrition, and then goes to title to be atonement. named to atonement. No, got the, it. Final, the final one is atonement. Yeah. Okay, got it. Got it. Mm-hmm. Oh, very good. Well, you know, m- middle books of a trilogy aren't always bad. I love the Empire Strikes Back. So, mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> I mean, clearly, clearly, the best movie of all of them. Um, and yeah, people often worry about that. I've written two now, two middle books in a trilogy, and I always have a blast with them. I don't know it, why. It seems to be where most of the meat is for the story. It's, it's it for me, can be. in any, any kind of trilogy that's out there, except for those Star, Tra- Star Wars fan films that were made, um, by <laughs> some guy named George Lucas, uh, right. there's, there's just so much beautiful story because you there's the build-up in one, there's the meat in two, and then there's resolution in three, and it's just a beautiful... I, I love when, when books can string together like that, because it's usually yeah. when I have to stay home, mm-hmm. quote-unquote, sick, and read all the other two right before I read the last one. Well, I think what tends to happen a lot is that you really go deep in the characters in the second book. Mm-hmm. You get sort of all of the action that needs to be set up in the first one, all of the obstacles, all the big threats. And then in book two, you tend to have people really going deep, trying to figure out how they're going to work through stuff. And then book three is usually, you know, just wham, bam, you know, constant action again, getting you to your resolution. Um, it was this, this particular trilogy was way more challenging than I thought it was going to be when I started. I, Protectors was kind of its own thing. It, the, the notion for it, the idea that I had in my mind when I was developing the whole story was really all about the world of the first quadrant. And I couldn't believe it took me a whole book before I even got there. That was a little bit frustrating. <laughs> so once I got to the second book, I was like, okay, now I can really get into the story that I was planning to tell, you know. Um, and uh, and then I only had one book to finish it, which was, again, sort of like, oh, but there was so much else I wanted to do. <laughs> oh, I don't know yet. I, I, I just finished it. I just turned it into my editor. I don't even have notes yet, so I have no idea if it worked or not, but we'll see. <laughs> we'll find out. Mm-hmm. Well, if people want to uh, uh, find it and get a hold of copies of your past books and keep an eye out for Acts of Contrition, mm-hmm. uh, where can they? Where should they be looking for these books? Well, Amazon is um, is has everything, obviously, as does Barnes and Noble uh, online, and in the if you're looking in brick and mortar stores, Barnes and Noble still keeps a pretty good selection of current titles um, on the shelves. Hang on. <laughs> Please make sure your trays and seat backs are in the upright position. And the log position, right? That <laughs> half an inch makes such a huge difference. Right. Don't turn on your um, iPod because we could crash. Are <laughs> 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 you telling me I can plummet this thing with something about a radio show? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <I> can... <laughs> yeah, huge West Wing fan. Um, okay, so, um, so yeah, so, so online... Amazon, Barnes and Noble. There's lots of there's lots of online retailers actually that have these books. Um, and then uh, the only place, the only bookstores I ever look at anymore, are Barnes and Noble, because I don't really hear everything else is closed down. I mean, there's no more Bookstar or any of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, really, that's I guess that's pretty much it. Awesome, awesome. And then if if people want you know, to sort of follow the conversations about these books and what's happening, um, the best place to do that is the Trek BBS. Uh, You'll find a lot of authors there, myself included, who go in and will answer, you know, readers' questions and, you know, engage in conversations and stuff like that. And that that is Trek DBS. Is that trekdbs.com? Trekbbs.com, yeah. Uh, Is that that VBS? B is in boy, B is in boy, S T R. Okay, I'm sorry. I was just mis- <laughs> I was mishearing it. So, mm-hmm. oh, very good, very good. Well, 
Kirsten, thank you so much for taking a portion of your evening here to chat with us here at the Sci-Fi Diner and tell us, let us a little bit into your world of writing these novels, of telling these stories, what it's like, and and what we have in store for us in the future. Well, you're very welcome. Yeah, it was, it was a pleasure. It was lovely chatting with you. Thank you. You guys too. Thank you so much for visiting the Sci-Fi Diner. We hope you enjoyed the food, the service, and the conversations. If you'd like to share your thoughts regarding what we've talked about, or tell us what you're watching or reading, flip open your communicators and contact us at 1-888-508-4343 or click the SpeakPipe link at scifidinerpodcast.com or send an MP3 or typed email to scifidinerpodcast at gmail.com. You can also join the conversation on our Facebook fan page at facebook.com slash sci-fi diner. We'll share your thoughts on our listener feedback show. If you'd like to support the diner beyond the conversation, you can always throw some coins in the tip jar at sci-fi diner podcast.com. And then I heard you mention the West Wing thing. That's a whole nother show. I could talk about West Wing. <laughs> right? <laughs> Last November, I, I like when when I when I'm doing stuff around the house, I will put it on the Netflix because it just keeps playing. Yeah, because it's beautiful. It's it's yeah. absolutely beautiful. And in November, I had my tonsils out, and I spent two weeks curled up in my in my dad's barca lounger with my mom bringing me ice and soup and the only thing, and every three hours I had to take another oxycodone to to keep me going and entertained. I, I bore through all of West Wing in two weeks. There was no sleeping. There was napping. So every once in a while I'd wake up to Josh being a jackass and, (laughs) you know, and, and just beautiful. So I have to earmark one day, Next time you're at Shirley or if I'm out in L.A., if you have a moment to grab a coffee, I would be, <laughs> be a blast. Well, at some point I need to finish the series. I watched, I mean, I'm a huge, huge fan of Aaron Sorkin. Mm. And so I watched the first four seasons without fail. And then I started the fifth when the new writers and producers took over. And I probably watched maybe the first six or seven episodes and then I just couldn't take it anymore. About the time Leo had his heart attack, I was done. I was like, you know what, I just, I just can't. Yeah, you have to push. You kind of have to push through, and yeah. it it, well, it starts to get better. Later in 
the like years after I think it was all done, I found the last couple of seasons on DVD, and I went ahead and bought them just to have the whole set. Mm-hmm. And someday I probably will go back and watch it because I know that Sorkin wrote like the last one or the last couple or whatever, and I sure probably you can tell it. where his hands came back in. Yeah, it, it's yeah. very it's it's very clear to me when he jumps back in. Yeah. And when they start, they you know they're having those midnight phone calls that we have a script due in six hours. Help us, kind of moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, wonderful. Mm-hmm. I read and a, then I read a, uh, I just I read an interview with him not that long ago, where he talked. They asked him if he had been watching, the episodes after he left the show, and he said he couldn't. It was like watching somebody else sleep with your girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> like, wow, I get that. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Get, wow. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Wow. Well, yeah. that, that that would be like someone like writing your Voyager novels. Yeah, seriously, seriously, like after <laughs> if, a little bit. So. Kirsten, thanks for the books. Yeah, we killed Janeway again. So yeah, yeah. cool. You know what? I'm more power to you. <laughs> and uh, Harry Harry Kim still doesn't get laid. So well, you know, I'm doing all I can in that regard, folks. I really am. Actually, that is my only other question in in your series, and I've just I've just ordered all of them on on the Amazons. Um, mm-hmm. Does Harry Kim finally get a girl? Yeah, he does. Okay, good. Her, name, her name's Nancy Conlon. She's from the uh, Star Trek. Star Trek Corps of Engineers ebook series. I don't know if you're familiar with those. I am. Um, yeah. But when I was putting my uh, new fleet together, um, I was asked to take some of, some characters from existing um, storylines and bring them in, and she was one of them. So she comes in as Voyager's chief, new chief engineer. And, uh, yeah, they've got a nice little thing going now. So Poor Harry. All that time. And the only time he got some, he got a venereal disease that changed his DNA. I know, right? No, <laughs> Harry Tim could never catch a break, and and he's one of the characters that I've had to work very hard with to um, to uh, do that whole deepening, growing, changing thing, mm. um, because it just makes no sense that for seven years straight he was the same wide-eyed, you know. He was Richie um, Cunningham. Night, yeah, he was. So, so I mean, if you haven't read Full Circle yet, you'll see it starts in Full Circle. I mean, he gets his ass handed to him, and. <laughs> And and we begin from there rebuilding him. So by the time we get to actually um, Acts of Contrition, which is the one that's about to come out, because Tom has to leave, Harry actually steps up and he's temporary first officer for that entire book. Excellent. So he's got uh, he's he's growing. Yay! I look our, forward our to our that. Our engine is growing up. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah.